In the introduction to his classic book about the problem of pain entitled, wait for it, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis writes that he wanted to initially write the book anonymously. He says, and I quote, if I were to say what I really thought about pain, I should be forced to make statements of such apparent fortitude that they would become ridiculous if anyone knew who made them. You see, Lewis knew that while he was a very smart man, he knew a lot about pain intellectually, scripturally, experientially, he also knew that he was a man and that he did not always live up to some of the statements that he was going to make and he didn't want his readers to dismiss what he had to say because he was a flawed person. And oh boy, do I feel that this morning. Uh, our topic today is God's perspective and our anxiety. And it's a huge topic. It's a topic we're barely going to scratch the surface of. God's Word has a tremendous amount to say about it. Uh, I suggest you continue to read it. It's really good. I'm keenly aware that a lot of the things that I'm going to say this morning, I am preaching to myself every bit as much as I'm preaching to you. And uh, yeah, your, your grace and patience if you see me not living this out in a few weeks. Today I'm going to argue that our ability to experience the peace of Christ in our lives is dependent upon our ability to trust Him in all circumstances. I am not an expert on anxiety. I am just one beggar telling another beggar where he found some bread. You see, if you've got something good that, should, that can benefit other people, you're supposed to share it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 that God comforts us in our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort others in theirs. In a very recent season where I just felt like I was getting beat up by stress, by anxiety, God put the verses we're going to look at today on my heart and it brought me tremendous comfort. So I just want to share that with you today. So this morning, we're just going to look at Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, and see what God has to say on the subject of stress and anxiety. Uh, you can open up your Bibles then to Psalm 127. If you're using the Pewback Bibles, our text is found on page 518 and on the screens behind me. This is the word of the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, that's really short. Like, why don't, how about, I got an idea. Let's read that again, but this time, can you join me? Can we all read this together this morning? Yes? Oh, you're very quiet. Okay, whew, I got nervous for a second. Here we go. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Nice job, everybody. Now, these two verses are short and easy to memorize. You're going to hear them a bunch today. I strongly encourage all of you, man, get it memorized by the end of the day. It's going to be pretty easy to do. You will be blessed by it. Now, before we dive into our text here, let's open in a word of prayer and ask the God of peace to guide us this morning. 
Father, we love you and we thank you for the great privilege of gathering together to sing praises to your glorious name. We thank you for the privilege of the church. We thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word that you did not have to give us and yet you did. Father, we thank you that you love us and you care about us and you're with us in our difficult times as well as our good. Father, now as we seek to see what you have to say, Father, send the Holy Spirit in a mighty way. Speak through me. If this is my words, it will not work. It must be yours. Father, send the Spirit into this room. Help us to have ears to hear, silence, distraction, and help us to focus on what you would have us hear this morning. We thank you that we have this access in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so before we begin, we need to make sure we're defining a term correctly. Okay, the phrase in vain, what does that mean? mean. It's a common biblical phrase. If you're a lifelong Bible person, you're like, I know what that means. But we don't use it a lot today, so I want to make sure we're all on the same page, right? So I will illustrate. A few years ago, I needed to remove an old broken dishwasher from my kitchen. We were, well, it didn't work, and we were doing a reno project. And dealing with a major appliance is not something to be done carelessly, right? Write this down. Safety is no accident. Okay? Major appliances connected to electricity. Electricity can kill you. So, not being a dummy, I checked the electricity not once, not twice, but three times because I'm not a dummy. So, as we go to remove the dishwasher, at that point I realized in my zeal to check the electricity, I may have neglected to check the water that was connected to it. So, see, some of you know where this is going. Okay. We pull the thing out, you hear this little pop, water starts spraying everywhere, and immediately we know there is a problem, and it is at this point we now realize that the master shutoff valve to the plumbing in our home does not operate. So we call an emergency plumber, and myself, my darling wife Charlie, and John Edis, Moody Church volunteer extraordinaire who was helping me out that morning, uh, we start mopping while we wait for the plumber. And in vain means when you get done with something, you look back and go, Oh, there was no point in even trying, was there? That was a useless use of an hour. That's in vain, right? At the end of whatever it is, if it's done in vain, you look back and say, I cannot even tell that I did anything. That's in vain. All right, moving on. Here's my plan for this morning. First, through the lens of Psalm 127, I want us to examine how we're approaching our lives. What is it we're trying to accomplish, and how are we trying to accomplish it? Second, we're going to examine how, because of our separation from God, our default setting in this life is actually anxiety. Third, I am going to risk making your anxiety significantly worse, and then we will close with some super practical ways of experiencing the peace that God is offering to each and every one of us. Sound good? All right, good. You're getting slightly noisier. That's good. Keep it up. Okay. So here's the deal. These two verses are addressing the two primary motivators of everything that you do in this life, building and keeping, okay? Building and keeping. First, we're worried about building. Now, we're not talking about IKEA furniture. We're not talking about a home reno project. We mean literally, how am I going to build my life? And when you think about the future that you want for yourself, I'd say that is a very common cause of our stress, right? Students, you're wondering, what kind of grades do I need to get into the right kind of school? What school do I need to get into to get the right job? What kind of job do I need to get to get the right career? It just starts to build, right? How can I build the legacy that I want to build? 
Or maybe, maybe you're just asking yourself, how do I find a job in this economy that lets me pay my rent and grocery bill at the same time? Okay? Some of you are wondering, how am I going to find the right person in order to marry, in order to start my family? And, and the biological clock is ticking a little bit, and I'm starting to get a little more anxious about it, and as this time keeps going, and I haven't met that person. Okay, that's building. Verse 1 reads, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The author is saying, if you try to build your life without God, good luck. If God is determined to withhold blessing from you, you're not going to get blessed. But if God is determined to build your life, there's nothing that's going to stop him. If God is the one building your future, you need to ask yourself, do I trust him to build it? Our second major concern is keeping. It's holding on to what you've built or what you've been given, right? You built that GPA, now you've got to maintain it. Adults, you built a great reputation, a great career, a great relationship, but now you are so gripped by the fear that that thing is slipping through your fingers. Maybe you've built a nest egg for retirement and things completely outside of your control, like fluctuations in the stock market, have you concerned that that nest egg is gonna be gone next year? That's keeping. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. That is language about keeping, right? That's what city watchmen are for, right? You've got a, a military force on the outside wall of a city, and they're looking out into the darkness, keeping their eyes fixed on the horizon, just making sure some invading army isn't going to swoop in and take everybody's stuff in the middle of the night. And if you think an army watching over a city stands a chance at defending it, if God is determined to destroy it, you are mistaken. However, if God is protecting that city, there is no force on earth that can take it down. And if God is protecting the city, then you need to ask yourself, do I trust him to protect it? Now, one issue with building and keeping is perspective. If our perspective is off, you can spin your wheels, expending all the blood, sweat, and tears you have in pursuit of your goals and come up with nothing to show for it, as though you were trying to mop up an ongoing water leak you look around after all of your hard work, maybe for years or for decades, and you can say, what was the point of even trying? If you could see what God sees, though, if you knew what God knew, are you confident that you would be trying to build the same things as before? If we could see things from God's perspective, if we had his wisdom, how confident are we that we would be so concerned about holding on to some of the things that we're holding on very tightly to? Verse 2 reads, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. I'm not going to lie, I love that phrase. Oh, the Bible's got some poetry to it. That bread of anxious toil, it communicates so much, right? It seems to say, man, you got something for your efforts. It's just not very good, right? Like, I've got bread, but it's... It's too stale, you know, it's been sitting out too long, it's, it's a little overly salty, there's some sketchy colored fuzzy patches on it, right? What he is saying here is that all of your hustle, harder attitude is a massive waste of time if it is not done for things that matter. These verses tell us that your efforts alone cannot get you the things that you want and they cannot get you the peace that you seek. You see, Genesis 3.19 tells us, 
that the bread of anxious toil is actually our lot in life. It's our default position. Fun fact, Genesis 3.19 is the first time that the word bread actually appears in the Bible. And the context is the bread of anxious toil. You see, Adam is told that because he has rejected God's rule, although his life will be spared, life outside the garden, outside the presence and provision of God will not be easy. Adam will eat bread, but by the sweat of his face. When we decide that, like Adam, we just want God to leave us alone, we want to be masters of our own destinies, he will let us do just that. But the very best that we can hope for in this life, in that case, is the bread of anxious toil. However, that is not what you were made for. No human being was designed to be autonomous. He didn't design us to live life on our own, cut off from the source of all life and blessing any more than your car was designed to run without fuel, right? You try to run your car without the fuel it was designed to run on, it does not go very far. A person trying to live their life apart from God's power and presence can only hope for the bread of anxious toil. That, that's the reason the Sabbath was given to God's beloved people as the basis for their entire concept of time, right? They had one day every week where they were not allowed to work. Why? Because they needed the reminder that it was God, not man, who provided for their daily needs. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And as such, all of our work is designed to be done, not alone, but in partnership with him, serving his purposes, done for his glory. What Psalm 127 reminds us is that even though this world is fallen, even though that we are rebels who choose our own way rather than God's, we can know true rest in the presence of God if we will submit to his rule, trusting him to build and keep our lives. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. See, the psalm here doesn't contain instructions for how to build or keep our own peace. It says that true rest is a gift that he gives to his beloved. Is that not comforting? But now the super practical question, okay? How do we get God to build and keep our lives? Right? That's the question. You're saying, Justin, this whole too blessed to be stressed thing sounds amazing. I want some, I'm in. Okay. How do we trick God into doing our bidding? How do we get some dirt on God in order to blackmail him into giving us what we want? What are the magic words that we can pray in order to obligate God to bless us? In case you did not pick up, that was sarcasm. That is not how this works. Okay, thank you. Please don't send emails. Let me, let me be very, very clear. God is not a genie. Jesus Christ is not a glorified Amazon driver. Jesus is king. The Bible doesn't speak about how to add a little Jesus to our lives to, to finally make them complete and make them whole, right? It's not in there. I have looked. I have looked. 
The Bible instead talks about dying to ourselves and to our old lives and living to him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A few chapters later, Paul writes in 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This isn't adding a little Jesus into Paul's life. This is saying the world is dead, but not just dead, crucified, the most brutal form of public execution ever devised by the will of evil man. You see, in the end, the thing that we need more than any other The highest good for our lives is nothing short of God himself, the one who can provide, who can build, who can keep our lives, and everything else is a distant second. Now, to get some of you very stressed out, does verse 2 say, he gives to everyone sleep? Does it say he gives to those who work harder, more deserving sleep? Does it say he gives to the most humble, the most pious, the richest, the poorest, the tallest, the shortest? It does not. It says he gives to his beloved sleep. Is that you? Are you sure? How do you know? Friends, if you are not convinced that this verse is speaking directly to you, May I humbly suggest that there is literally nothing else you could do today, this week, this month, or this year that is more important than being confident of the answer. If you respond to that question with, well, you know, I said a prayer at camp 13 years ago, but you have lived every single day of your life since then, like you want nothing to do with him and you want him nowhere near your life, would you be bold enough to ask yourself some hard questions today? How well do you know this God that we are singing praises to this morning? Do you really believe that he is who the Bible says he is? Do you believe what these verses are saying about you, that you are not capable of earning and working and achieving your own rest and your own peace? Do you believe that out of love for you, Jesus Christ, the second person of our glorious triune God, took on human flesh, came to live the life that we couldn't live to die the death that our sins deserved, that he was raised on the third day as the Son of God in power and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling everything as King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you want him to be your king? Friends, the peace of Christ cannot be separated from the person of Christ. You cannot have one without the other. Now. If you're sitting there this morning and you are trying to follow him and you're just doing a terrible job of it, would you be encouraged? Praise God. We are not told that Jesus came to save the perfect. Turns out the perfect don't need saving. Jesus came to save the lost. Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, 28, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you will come to Jesus broken, stressed out, realizing you can't build or keep anything apart from him, 
if you're willing to turn from making your life all about you and making it all about him, I would say you have a very good case for believing you are indeed his beloved. You see, the Bible tells us that the very ability to see Jesus as worth following is itself a gift that God only gives to his beloved. Your efforts may be good or bad in that following, but your efforts can't save you. Only Christ can do that. And if you care enough to put in the effort, friends, it is a good sign that he already has. Nothing will bring you proper rest like knowing deep down in your bones that you are God's beloved. When you know that for real, you can be singing, Jesus loves me, right? And the words will hit you and you'll just start weeping tears of joy. And if you do it on a CTA bus, you are going to look nuts. And that's okay because God will be with you in that moment. But Romans 31, 831, excuse me, Romans 831, boop, there we go. If God is for us, who can be against us? If you don't know that he's for you, would you come talk to one of our prayer partners, talk to somebody next to you after the service? We want to help you figure this out. If you're struggling with your assurance this morning, please don't struggle alone. You are in very good company. You really are. These are not easy questions, and it's so easy to ignore the hard questions and just, just put them somewhere else. Don't do that. Hard questions are worth asking. They're worth asking. Now, I think some of you are saying to yourself right now, okay, I get what you're saying. I believe that I am indeed God's beloved, okay? I am not struggling uh, with my assurance of salvation. I am, however, struggling with a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, okay? I don't doubt my salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, based on the finished work of Christ alone. I'm a moody church person. My doctrine is solid, okay? but I need help sleeping at night. My friend Corbin Wisniewski said this. He said, your ability to have the peace, purpose, and joy of Christ in your life is an outgrowth of your maturity and trust. See, our ability to have peace in all circumstances is dependent upon our ability to trust him in all circumstances. How do we do that? Okay, five little tips on how you can have the peace of Christ. First. We seek communion with God in prayer. Are you functionally trying to build and keep your life on your own? If you want God to build your life and watch over what you've got, do you think it might be a good idea to ask him to step in, right? James tells us we do not have because we do not ask. Are we bringing the things that are keeping us up at night to our Father who loves us and calls us his beloved? Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer was credited with saying, I have so much to do today, I shall have to pray three hours instead of the usual two. Now that sounds like hyperbole to some of us, but I'm going to give you a secret you may not know. Prayer time adds time to your day. It does not subtract from it. Prayer time adds time to your day. Okay? I have tried it. I can confirm. I know I'm looking out at a lot of prayer warriors in this room that will affirm I'm not nuts, at least not here. Okay? I know what I'm talking about. If you are too busy to pray, if you think you are too busy to pray, I would uh, gently rebuke and say you are entirely too busy not to. Second, we spend time in God's Word. Are you hoping that this God you don't know very well is going to give you what you are asking for? Okay? The better you know him, the naturally less anxious you will be because you know his character. 
you know he is faithful. You know that what he says is true, and you know that he's got you. The Bible is filled with evidence that he can be trusted. Isaiah 26.3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind rests on you because he trusts in you. If you're not regularly seeking to know God through his word, do not be surprised if you're struggling to trust him. It's just common sense. Just common sense. How many of you would feel comfortable handing your car keys to a random stranger out on LaSalle right now? Okay? Naturally, well, I hope not. Don't do that. Okay? You should similarly feel iffy about turning over your entire life to King Jesus if you don't know him well enough to know he can be trusted. Now, I'm not saying that judgmentally. That's an encouragement, right? It's an encouragement. If you want the peace of Christ in your life, let me suggest you want to get into the word like your life depends on it. Third, we find community with God's people. Have you gotten other people to join you in prayer? Have you enlisted other saints sitting around you, people for whom Christ died to help bear your burdens? If you say you don't need other Christians, you are either lying or mistaken. If you think you can live as a follower of Jesus without gathering in worship, gathering in community, gathering in small groups, softball leagues, moms groups, whatever, you must be a way stronger Christian than I am. I mean, look, not even Pastor Philip or Erwin Lutzer are strong enough for that, okay? I've met them. They're not that strong. Sorry, Philip. Fourth, we seek God's perspective. It's getting our eyes off of our problem and on to Jesus. You, you notice some of these kind of build, right? Like there's, there's an order to this? Okay. Oftentimes, that is the entire point of our suffering, or the entire point of our stress and anxiety. God loves you enough to do whatever is necessary to bring you to him. Think about the story of David and Goliath for just a quick second, right? We all know this story even if you're not a church person. We've got two hills, okay? On the one hill, you've got the army of Israel. On the other hill, you've got the army of the Philistines, the enemy of Israel. And in the middle, there's a valley. And in that valley, there's a big humongous guy named Goliath. And Goliath spends 40 days taunting the army of Israel. And a detail that we often miss with this story is we don't think about why was he there for 40 days? Friends, the only reason Goliath was allowed to be there for 40 days is because on day one, some random soldier on Israel's side didn't go, what's that guy talking trash? I'm gonna go kill him and go kill him, right? Israel's problem was they were so focused on how big the situation in front of them looked that they completely forgot that it is God who was to fight their battles. And God is infinitely bigger than any giant in front of them. If you will believe the lie that you are responsible for everything in front of you this week, if you, belie, if you believe the lie that God is way up there, I'm way down here, he's really big, I'm really small, he can't possibly care for me, okay? You are going to see big, scary things in front of you and see them as much bigger and much scarier than they actually are in light of God's perspective. Fourth, sorry, that was four. Fifth, rest in God's sovereignty. What does that mean? It's a $4 church word, so I'll explain. Do you believe that God is actually ruling the universe? Or is that just something you know you're supposed to say because we're at church, right? Like, God's on the throne. God's got this. Ran out of gas, but it's cool. God's got it. Okay. Do you believe that God actually knows more than you do? Or do you question whether he has all the facts about your life and how hard you have it? 
Our ability to experience the peace of Christ in our lives is dependent upon our ability to trust him in all circumstances. But here's the key to that trust. Are you open to the idea that God may have other ideas about what is best for you? You may be God's beloved, but if you're not seeking his wisdom, you may be trying to build your life into something that God loves you enough to say no to. How much of our anxiety today is rooted in a fear of, well, what if blank happens? Now, a scary one. How comfortable are, you, comfortable are you with the statement, I want what God wants for my life? Now, that should have given some of you chills. That is a terrifying thing to say out loud. Why? Because God may have a very different idea about what is good for you than you do. But... Do we believe what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that everything works together for good for those who are called according to his purposes? It's everything. It's not just the good things that we want. It's not just the holy things of the Christian life, but our sufferings, our downturns, our humiliations, the injustices done to us, our failures, even our anxiety itself. Everything, if you are God's beloved, is used by God for your good. How often do we confuse the values of the kingdom of this world with the values of the kingdom of God? How often do we believe that good health and material success must be a sure sign of God's favor? Friends, if our highest good is God alone, then our true enemy is far more likely to be found in our prosperity than it is in our adversity. That's the heart of he gives to his beloved sleep. It's not a prosperity theology idea that says, if you were God's beloved, you'd never suffer, you'd never be anxious. But it's the realization that because God has ordered your steps, no matter where those steps take you, it will be for your good. So you can seem to say, where are we going? And he says, I don't know, but it's going to be great when we get there. Our anxiety over what he is building in our lives gets less and less and less the more we realize he is a far better builder than we are. You can let go of trying to control the future when you can trust him with your life. John Flavel, a 17th century English Puritan, wrote this. He says, but as the worst things are ordered to the benefit of the saints, so the best things that wicked men enjoy do them no good. Paul says something similar in Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Friends, God loves us enough to use whatever it takes to keep us from settling for the bread of anxious toil. This does not mean that we're happy when we suffer, that we rejoice, that we're anxious, right? But we can have peace in our suffering because we know that God has a reason for whatever lies ahead. This is not don't worry, be happy theology. There may be daunting things in front of you. I'm not minimizing that. But if you are God's beloved, you can know that the things that this world tells you to fear are nothing more than tools of grace in the hand of your king. Tools of grace in the hand of the one who calls you beloved. Won't you rest in the arms of the king of the universe who does not promise you a life 
free from anxiety, free from adversity, but he promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you in the midst of it. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The very things that we fear in front of us that drive us to anxiety may be the very things that he is using to show us he's trustworthy. The very thing we need in order to trust him. To know him as our highest good. To trust his will as Christ did in the garden, facing down the humiliation of the cross, only to be gloriously resurrected on the other side. Friends, that is rest. It's seeing the very real possibility of our worst fears around the corner and knowing that the God who calls you his beloved is sovereign over it all. Our ability to experience the peace of Christ in our lives is dependent upon our ability to trust him in all circumstances. I'm going to close by reading our passage one more time. Feel free to join me. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you that no matter where our perspective is in this life, we know that you see all. We know that you have us in the palm of your hand as dearly beloved children. Father, we know that your word is true and where we struggle to trust and where we struggle to see you as trustworthy, as glorious, as truly sovereign and ruling, Father, help us. Give us more grace. Be our vision. Help us to see you more clearly than we see anything else in this life. Father, I pray for those in this room right now who are struggling with real hurt, who are struggling with real fear, who are struggling with real challenge this week and this day. Father, send your peace there. Convict them that they are your beloved. Father, show all of us when we are down that all we have to do is call out to you as our strong tower, our defender, our deliverer, and you are there with us. Father, be with us as we go from this place. Give us the peace of Christ in greater measure and let us use that peace as a sign and a witness to the world around us. Use your people here to bring revival. Use your people here to point to Jesus as more glorious, more beautiful, more worth following, more worth leaving everything for than anything else in this world. We thank you again, Father, that we have this access. Continue to bless us here and let our worship be acceptable to you. And this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.